This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hi, I'm Deborah Yao from Knowledge at Wharton. I'm here with Scott Phoenix, who is co-founder and CEO of Vicarious, and also a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Scott. Thanks. It's great to be here, Deborah. So a little bit about the company. Uh, Vicarious is an artificial intelligence firm that is developing human-level intelligence in robots. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And I understand that it is also backed by some of the most famous names in tech, such as Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Jerry Yang, Peter Thiel, and many others. Many of of my personal heroes. So these are really some big hitters uh, supporting you. What gets them excited about Vicarious? Well, I, I think that uh, it's it's getting harder and harder to argue that that uh, artificial intelligence is not the next big thing. I think that AI has already come to touch so many different parts of all of our lives, uh, and I think that's only going to get more significant as, as the future approaches. So uh, let's start by explaining what is artificial intelligence before we get into more detail about what your company is actually doing. Uh, what exactly is it, and what are some misconceptions people have about it? Yeah, well, I, I think the, 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 the first thing to do is introduce a little bit of the distinction, because there are a lot of misconceptions about artificial intelligence, and I, I think a lot of them stems from not making this distinction. So I, I'd like to bin artificial intelligence into two different bins. One is artificial narrow intelligence, And the second is artificial general intelligence. Artificial narrow intelligence, you can think of as a decrease in the price of prediction. So right now, AI is used to predict all kinds of things, like uh, what ad to show you when you're on Facebook or Twitter or or Google, uh, or um, what person might be in a photograph. And so our advances in AI in the last two decades and our our, – advances in computing power and storage and, and data sets have led us to a situation where prediction of those kinds, narrow predictions, has gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And now it's so cheap that you can have systems that predict what word you're saying when you talk to your phone, and that's what gives us Siri. And so that's the, the narrow intelligences. And this also includes things like uh, uh, Google DeepMind's AlphaGo Go Player. Uh, that's a, a narrow intelligence that predicts whether a go board is a winning go board or a losing go board, it's uh, and that's all it does. It's just a very narrow intelligence. Um, now, there's a second kind of intelligence I would call artificial general intelligence, and that's intelligence that's designed instead of just making predictions about a narrow data set. It's designed so that if it has this, if you give it the same kinds of experiences that a human has from birth to adulthood, it learns the same kinds of concepts and gets the same kinds of abilities that a human has. So basically for narrow intelligence, it's a much more limited functionality, whereas for general intelligence, it functions more like a, the human brain, and it is adaptable and flexible. Yeah, and I wouldn't say one is strictly better or worse than the other in the sense that um, narrow intelligences can do all kinds of different things, things that humans can't do that well. Like, for example, most humans can't play Go very well, but you can build a narrow intelligence to play Go better than any person. And you can build a narrow intelligence um, that's better at you know, regulating temperatures inside of a data center uh, than any human could be. And so that's the, the advantage of a narrow intelligence is that you can 
you can design it to be better than any human at tasks that humans aren't necessarily that great at, uh, or even some tasks that humans are good at, like predicting who's in a photograph. Um, but general intelligences um, uh, are ones that are limited in, in the sense that they're, they focus on doing what humans already do well, so controlling a body, understanding human-like concepts, uh, and accomplishing long-term goals. So vicarious is, uh, interest is developing uh, the artificial general intelligence, right, instead of artificial narrow intelligence. That's um, right. Our, our research focuses on artificial general intelligence, and specifically, um, how do you make a robot uh, do all the kinds of things that a human can do? And why is that important? I mean, narrow intelligence seems to narrow intelligence AI seems to be doing just fine. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important because right now the world is full of, of cheap robot parts, like motors and sensors and electricity, and nobody owns any robots. You know, we live in bizarro land where all, all of the work that's being done around the world is generally done by by human hands. Uh, right now, there's 800,000 humans assembling iPhones, not 800,000 robots. Um, and that's despite of the fact that robots are, are physically capable of doing a lot of these kinds of uh, manual tasks. A robot is perfectly capable of cooking a meal, for example. Uh, but no one uses robots to cook meals because the artificial intelligence isn't general enough to allow the robot to do that. So uh, the, the reason why Vicarious is focused on artificial general intelligence for robots is that this is a technology that would enable us to live in a world that's a lot more like the Jetsons world. It would let us make uh, labor much more affordable, which would then let us uh, all uh, rise in society. And how exactly uh, do you do that? You know, I'm sure that's kind of maybe the holy grail for AI is human-level intelligence. Um, what strategy or technology or algorithms are you using to accomplish that? Um, you can think of what we're doing as, as, as taking what we've learned about and what neuroscience has learned about the brain in the last 30 years uh, and applying that to uh, building models that work much more like the brain than kind of contemporary artificial intelligence approaches. There's some brain inspiration in today's AI algorithms, but not very much compared to how much structure we know to be inside the brain. And so I think um, also you've you uh, and the leap a Georgia co-founder has mentioned in the past that um, um, there's something called the old brain and something called the new brain and uh, vicarious is focused on the new brain can you explain that a little bit more yeah I think you can think of the the old brain as, as a lot like these narrow intelligences you have you know frogs that have superhuman ability to catch flies they can catch flies far better than I can um, but they're not generally intelligent. And so uh, that, the, and, and you could think of AlphaGo almost as like a, a frog that all it does is play go, plays Go uh, or something. It, it's no smarter than that, and, and um, it's following a, a very narrow set of programming. Um, whereas you and I are capable of learning all kinds of new skills on the fly uh, and adapting our behavior. And um, I understand it because of um, your artificial general intelligence that Vicarious is developing, you're able to solve some pretty tough problems that narrow AI um, has not been able to solve, such as um, correctly identifying uh, CAPTCHAs. Can you uh, talk yeah, about right. that a little bit more? Yeah, so we published some research in the Journal of Science this year um, about how we were able to use our uh, more general uh, vision systems to, uh, to understand the contents of text-based CAPTCHAs. 
and and circumvent them. And so that was one of the one of the research papers that we recently published. And um, really, what it, it's all about is not necessarily solving captures, but it's about showing that we can build a vision system that has the same kinds of properties that uh, the human neocortex has, uh, and apply that not just to captures, but to a wide range of different pro- uh, problems, such as recognizing objects in an in a industrial environment on a robot. And um, also, I think one of the examples that um, you um, you like to highlight was that, you know, um, a regular AI could be fooled by such things as, um, you know, making a screen brighter and suddenly they get confused, whereas, um, you know, the kind of AI you're developing um, would actually see through that and continue working. Yeah, I mean, one of the misconceptions I think that's... that's uh I see regularly applied to AIs of today is that um, when people see a system do something that is intelligent in its behavior, like, you know, play Atari or play Go, they assume that it's intelligent in the way a human is intelligent. So they assume that, you know, that system that can play Go, you know, can also uh, play checkers uh, or play chess. And really, in order to go from playing Go to playing um, chess, which is, you know, something that, that narrow AI in order to make that switch, it needs to be re- completely retrained from scratch. Uh, and it needs not a little bit of retraining. It needs you know, the human equivalent of about three to 5,000 years of continuous 24-7 playing of chess in order to learn how to play chess. And after it's learned how to play chess, it can't play Go anymore. So it's a very, very narrow intelligence. And I, I see uh, a common misconception is that people will, will read a story in the news and they'll assume that means that the AI is really smart, uh, and it doesn't really mean that. It just means that the, the AI is able to do a narrow task in a very particular narrow circumstance. So what, um, what are the practical applications of your technology? Um, well, right now, robots, in order to get a robot to do something, you, you have to program it using uh, you know, a series of, of uh, joint configurations. Basically, tell it to move its arm through a sequence of waypoints. And... As you can imagine, that, that's very error-prone. If I ask you to make a sandwich, but instead of just asking you to make a sandwich using bread and, and peanut butter and jelly, I, I told you where to move your arms in 3D space as a sequence, as a list of commands, um, it probably wouldn't work very well, and it would probably take a long time. And if someone you know, bumps the bread uh, a couple inches to the left, all of those joint configurations that I gave to you to follow are going to now be misaligned and you'll be putting peanut butter on the table. Uh, and so it's those kinds of problems that you need, you really need a more general AI in order to solve. And that's what we're working on solving bacteria. So what products do you see coming out of your, um, um, your technology? Our first product is a, is an intelligence layer for robots that helps robots to do uh, tasks that currently humans have to do inside of uh, warehouses and factories. So it's things like assembly and packaging that uh, robots for a long time have been physically capable of doing, but they've been too expensive or difficult to program to do. So are you primarily um, targeting the, uh, the enterprise sector or the consumer yeah. sector or, or both? We're, we're focused entirely on the enterprise sector for now, and I think that's the way a new technology like this needs to be adopted. Um, the, the nice thing about a factory or a warehouse is that it's very consistent. There's a, a lot of uh, regularities that we can take advantage of in terms of the kinds of objects that are being manipulated 
and the types of operations that are done to those objects uh, and how well controlled the environment is. In a person's home or an office or an unconstrained outdoor environment, there's just a lot more variation. Uh, and so it's, it's a much tougher task for an AI system to solve. So I think the order will be first solving it for the enterprise and then eventually solving it for the consumer. When are you going to market with your first product? So we should be doing some pilot tests this year, and then depending on how those go, we'll, we'll, we'll look at um, uh, moving to, to full scale you know, sometime after that. So tell me about the competition in this market. Um, are there many? Yeah. Well, there's, I think there's a, a collection of, of uh, older robotics companies that, um, you know, one of them, for example, ABV is, is the largest robotics company, is one of our investors. Um, and so I don't know that their competition so much as their, uh, you know, a potential partner or a sales channel for us. Um, and then there's also, uh, you know, companies that are startups that are, that are thinking about this space that are, generally speaking, a lot smaller than Vicarious. Uh, and haven't been you know, working on it for quite as long. Uh, and then lastly, there's large companies like Google or, or, uh, or Apple or something. Uh, and I think, those, I think of those as being less competitors insofar as their primary business isn't really um, working on, on uh, building an intelligence layer for industrial robots. It's, it's much more about um, either consumer products or web services or um, things of that nature. And so uh, they're not really exactly traditional traditional competitors in, in that sense. So how much money have you raised? We've raised about 130 million so far that we've announced. Okay, and do you what that puts you at what valuation? Can you can you say? Oh, we haven't announced the valuation. Um, so the the um, the who's who uh, in your list among your list of investors, what kind of impact have they had on the company, and are they giving you strategic advice? Um, yeah, I've had great conversations with all of all of our investors so far, and and they're you know like I said, they're some of my personal heroes. So it's been great to to learn from from them and and hear some of the war stories uh, of their path through building their companies. Um, they're people who I think all of us respect a great deal, uh, and that's been a, a really rewarding part of of building Vicarious is to have a chance to to get some advice and some expertise from these really incredible people. So this isn't your first rodeo in terms of running a company. What have you learned? What management lessons have you learned so far? I mean, I think the, the most interesting and hardest management lesson I learned from my first startup, or my, not my first startup, but what, the last startup I did before, uh, before Vicarious was um, the difference between uh, someone telling you that they want to buy your product and someone actually buying it. Um, we built a product at my last company for, it was another enterprise product that was like touch screens for the point of sale. And um, it was really interesting because we would give demonstrations to, to others uh, of, of the product uh, at a very large, you know, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 kind of, kinds of companies. And, and they would all uh, uniformly say, this is amazing. We really want this. This is great. Um, and, uh, but then when you'd say, okay, now take out your wallet, they would, you know, clam up a little bit and they'd say, oh, well, I really need to get, you know, Phyllis in here to take a look at it. Uh, and everyone was really worried about um, what everyone else would think of it. And it was, it was hard to get uh, someone to be a, uh, uh, an advocate for the product and to take responsibility for its success inside the organization. And so I think one of the lessons I learned from that experience was is to make sure that you're not just testing uh, oh, do people want to buy it in terms of their commitment level that they, they, they say that they'll 
make to using the product and to testing the product. But you're they're actually you're actually asking them to put their money in uh, from a, a pretty early phase. What's the most valuable piece of advice you've gotten from your advisors? Oh, that's too hard. It's it's like picking your favorite child. I think all of the advice I've gotten is is really incredible, and I think there's there's so much much different expertise from you know you look at the the advisors and investors that we have at Vicarious, and and they've all built such different businesses with different parameters on them, uh, and have had different life experiences doing it. So. Um, It's hard for me to, to, to pick just one anecdote. So Elon Musk has spoken out about the dangers of AI and how society could perhaps lose control of the self-learning robots and systems. Where do you stand on this issue? I, I think that Elon is a really long-term thinker. Uh, you know, his, For him, a, a, a reasonable near-term goal is to build a permanent human colony on Mars. And so when you have that long-term of a perspective, I think that You know, a lot of his comments start to make sense. Uh, but I think for the average person, um, you know, who, who might be listening to this podcast or just following the news, I don't think that they should be spending a lot of their time thinking about whether the robots are going to take over. There's just there's too much work that needs to be done um, just to build the most basic of functionality. Like right now, you can't have a robot that makes you a sandwich. Uh, and uh, going from there to robots that can take over the world somehow and outsmart the smartest humans, I think, is... Is a pretty big leap, and so um, I think that's you know where there's a difference between Elon's perspective and the average person's perspective, um, and I think that everyone who listens to what Elon has to say about this should really keep that in mind. What about AI's impact on jobs, though? Um, AI is a really interesting technology in that it's, people I think have been more more concerned now than they have been about past technologies. But if you zoom out and look at the the broad lens of human history, and I mean really broad, like let's, let's look at the last 3,000 years of human development. And what you see is that that, that is a 3,000-year story of people building technology that takes a task that used to take, you know, 10 humans to do and turn it into a task that takes two humans to do. You know, every, every technology from the wheel onwards is that kind of task. Um, and the result of 3,000 years of of automating is that there are more jobs now than there have ever been, uh, and there are more people employed now than there have ever been. And so I, I think that it's, uh, it's, it's, it seems counterintuitive to me to think that adding a, a yet another automation technology is going to somehow dry up all the jobs. And it's also interesting because it's, it's not a new fear. Um, there have been so many points in history in the past where uh, new automation has been introduced, and then people have felt very anxious that it's going to uh, disrupt all the jobs and that no one's going to be employed anymore. I think that has a very pessimistic view on human ingenuity and on where our society could go. Because I think that we're so far from living in a Jetsons-like world. Um, and to get us from here to there is going to require a lot of hard work by a lot of people and a lot of all kinds of new jobs that, that don't even exist today. Like, I think that You look at the U.S. Department of Labor projects that something like 60% of jobs that our children will have don't even exist yet. Um, and if I were to tell you 20 years ago that I'm a social media expert, it'd be very unclear what I was even meaning or an Uber driver. Uh, and so I think that we should keep that in mind when we worry about what's going to happen uh, from an employment perspective with these new technologies. Is it true that Vicarious is a flexible purpose corporation? Yeah, so when we incorporated ourselves, it was really important for us to, to be building this technology in a way that 
uh, disseminates its benefits to humanity broadly. Uh, and so we, we set ourselves up as a, as a social purpose corporation in order to, to ensure that we were held accountable by our board and by our, our shareholders to, to achieve that purpose. And so does, what does that mean? Does that mean that you are a nonprofit or? No, we're still a, we're still a for-profit company, but the difference between uh, being a for-profit company and being a social purpose corporation is that a for-profit company, your only um, thing that you're held accountable to is to uh, maximize shareholder wealth. And uh, you can see that go wrong in a lot of cases where uh Companies will take shortcuts on the environment or uh, on their community or their obligations to their employees, and uh, the world will be worse off for it in exchange for a temporary lift in their stock price that you know only really benefits the executive suite. And so that's uh, I think more companies should be social purpose corporations because I think that if they were, they would take into account a more diverse group of stakeholders, and the world would be better for it. Wonderful. We'll leave it at that. Thank you, Scott, for joining us today. My pleasure. You can find more insights from Knowledge of Wharton on our website, knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can also find all of our podcasts on iTunes. If you like what you hear, or even if you don't, please leave us a review. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 